Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at audio, And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never ever charge you for this podcast and i will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible all i ask in return is a share post and a tag now let's get on with it hello everybody my guest today is ben weinman who's a guitar player songwriter entrepreneur and artist manager who has just a ton of accolades in his career he's a founding member of the dillinger escape plan who was around for around 20 years and basically invented math metal i'd say i think that's that's an accurate thing to say he's the founder of party smasher inc which is an independent record label which was the home for dillinger as well as a super group founded by ben and brent hines of mastodon called giraffe tongue orchestra ben has been individually celebrated numerous times and Every single publication you can imagine. He currently plays in Suicidal Tendencies, and he manages the pop act Kimbra, and he's got an animal sanctuary. Let's get this started. I present you Ben Weinman. Ben Weinman, welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you. Well, thank you. First off, thanks for letting us have Dillinger on Nail the Mix. It's very, very cool. We've wanted to have Steve on for a long time, and I can't think of a better way to do it. It was interesting. It was really, no, I listened to it. It was really great. I'm just curious because, you know, lots of bands work with like, you know, it's a lot if they work with a producer for like three records. That's considered yeah. a lot. But uh, to stick with a producer for like an entire career span, I mean, I know he didn't produce every single yeah. thing, but he was involved in just about every single thing. What I'm just, for the producers listening, out there because that's mainly the audience here in your opinion what does it take for a band to feel comfortable enough or to to want to go back to someone that many times and not be like oh why don't we just test the waters someplace else or something fear of change (laughs) (laughs) yeah but you guys change your style so like you guys evolve so much that i guess the reason i was thinking is because usually bands will like see evolution musically as something where they also want to evolve. Change production and all that, yeah. Change production, yeah. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I mean, the thing about Dillinger is I think you nailed it. Like, there's so much unpredictability and there's so much evolution and change. And as we kept formulating the vocabulary of our sound, we kept trying to add something new in every album that maybe we either touched on in the past and then fully realized in the next album or, or had never done before. 
So for us, you know, any consistency helps. So that might be from, you know, not varying the set list that much from night to night because there's so much going on and so much unpredictable just within our performance that not having to think and run to your set list every five minutes to see what you're playing just helps. So like production wise, you know, working with someone like Steve who knows us so well, knows the music so well, is so close to us personally, knows the intricacies and importance of the details that have to be um, you know, focused on for a Dillinger album. Like those things are extremely important, especially when we're going into such crazy territory on every album. So for us, it's never been about like varying the producer. It's more been about building on what we've all done together and trying to take it to the next level. So it's almost like he's the constant in the equation in some ways. Yeah, totally. Like for us, changing producers on a Dillinger record would be the equivalent of like trying to play a concerto on like an unweighted MIDI keyboard when you're used to playing it like a grand piano. You know, like, it's just not productive. And, and also, like I said, I mean, Steve and I work so well together. I know Steve and Greg worked really well together. But Steve and I are brothers, you know? We became, he was my best man at my wedding. You know, he's been in basically a part of Dillinger longer than anybody but myself in the band, if you think about it. So not only had we grown individually in our careers, but then together, the relationship, the communication just got better and better to the point that, psychologically, we knew how to deal with each other even. So what you just said sounds like, I don't mean like what you said is cliche, but you know that cliche about producers being like the fifth or the sixth band member? Right. That's kind of like what you just described. And what is it about your relationship that made you feel comfortable enough to go there with him? I guess it maybe it was naive in some respects because, you know... Um, there's always like more than one way to skin a cat. But like I said, there was a reality to the fact that he had grown with the band so much mm -hmm. that there was less of a learning curve for him in every single album that we did than with someone who was coming in from scratch. God, who didn't I really can know imagine. <laughs> you know, so yeah. I mean, look, a Dillinger album is not only extremely intricate and technical, but it's also very organic. And there's not many producers who can nail that, you know? They're kind of either like doing the like very sampled uh, BPM, you know, like gridded, detail-oriented editing stuff, or they're like, let's get in a room and play and rock, you know? <laughs> like, and just it is what it is, you know? And um, like a Steve Albini or, a, you know? So um, Steve is like always had that perfect mix of like, we need this to sound like a machine, but you really need to really play it. But a human machine. You know, you need to really play it. And so, and I know you guys touched on it on the uh, Nail the Mix, and, and it's something we talk about all the time, and something I learned from him is that, something that was very frustrating for me working with Steve is that he'd always try to get me to keep replaying everything until it was perfect. And my whole point often was like, if you want it to be perfect, why don't you just cut and paste it? <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> like, seriously, like, it's like, why are you making me replay this until it sounds literally perfect? But, you know, as he said in your interview, and it's true, it's like, God is in the details. And, you know, it's not the one time you paste or the second time you paste. It's like, where do you draw the line? And it's that collective sweat and blood and dullness of the pick on the 45th time you hit the string or the shaking of your hand when you're still trying to, it's those little tiny, tiny nuances that make an album really feel alive. 
you know, at least for Dillinger anyway. So those are the things that he always understood. That's the stuff I learned from him. And also, you know, most of the production we were doing outside of Steve was just me doing stuff from home and things like that. And like, I was able to do that because of my work with Steve, you know? So you learned studio stuff through watching him or did you learn it on your own? I mean, like because of my lack of resources, I didn't have consoles and outboard gear and all that stuff. Like, you know, some of the technical stuff I would have learned from him wasn't really relevant. It's not like he was like using tons of plugins and things like that. And I was working from a laptop most of my career and then or from a desktop using a PC and Cubase. So like totally not the same world as him, you know? A lot more MIDI, a lot more synthesizers and programming on my end. But the philosophy and the way of doing things and the fact that like you take what you got and you try and make it sound real. So it's not necessarily like the idea to me was like if you don't have the outboard gear and you don't have the analog and you don't have the tape, you do your best to make it sound that way. Yeah. (laughs) Not like, okay, use this preset use these drum samples that everyone uses, like the Meshuggah drum samples, or that was really ingrained in me from him that like, you know, you, you, you whatever you, and, and Alan Duchess from West West Side really taught me a lot too. I mean, um, I used to go to all the master sessions and we'd sit and talk and he was kind of like a Yoda. So the one thing that stuck to me that Alan used to say is like, pick your tool and get to work. When everyone would always ask him like, what's the best, you know, compressor, what's the best amplifier to use? How do you like, do you like tape or what do you like better? He'd always say, it doesn't matter. Like, take what you've got and just get working. Stop worrying about those details, you know? It's like, and that's coming, you know, and as a guy who's for the first year of our band didn't even have an amplifier and used a guitar that was hanging over a bar that said uh, Coors Light on it and spray painted it silver with like the worst action and it, you know, like something that wasn't even supposed to be played. That for the first year of this band, I played that guitar and I borrowed an amp absolutely every single show we played. Yet we still made the band. We still played shows. We still made albums. You know, so that's always been my philosophy: take what you got and get to work. So actually, that was going to be what I was wondering: if you still feel that way about guitars and amps, and do you get precious about amps, or is it kind of that same philosophy of take what you got, make the best of it? It is what it is. I love that stuff. I love amps. I love sounds. I love playing with stuff. But I usually don't have time or the resources to do that kind of thing. And that's why, while I have acquired a certain amount of skills and have done production for other bands and stuff like that, I've always found it necessary to go to someone like Steve for the big albums, for the real albums. Because, you know, it's like my focus has always been on like just creating and then making it sound as good as possible by hook or by crook. Whereas, you know, you go into a place like Steve and, and with a band like Dillinger, most of the creating is done. Like by the time we go in the studio, fully realized demos that sound probably as good as some people's albums are already finished, you know? <laughs> and then we go in there and then it's like Steve beats the crap out of us. Steve gets the tones that are, you know, killer. Steve pushes us to the next level. Steve doesn't let us take shortcuts. You know, Steve starts pushing our drummer to pull out every single ghost note until literally he's gone through seven bottles of ibuprofen and may have to get a stomach pumped. You know, like, <laughs> like, like those are the kind of things that we would never do to ourselves and that he's just so genius at. It kind of takes a third party, I think, to push people to that level. I think it's actually 
super rare for someone to be able to push themselves like that. Cause I feel like there's a point where you think you've hit your limit. Like, I think everybody feels that way, whether it's exercise or guitar playing or anything like there's this, there's this ceiling we think we're at, which is usually inaccurate, but sometimes it takes somebody else to help us bust through it. I think. Totally. There's no way I would put myself through that hell. It's masochist. It's cinema. It's like, it's, <laughs> there's no way. I'm curious, man. I saw you guys on that bungle tour a long time ago and I had no idea who you guys were and I wasn't there for you guys. I didn't want to see an opening band. Yeah, I don't blame you. It was on the California tour. So I was like, fuck, I'm going to have to wait an hour <laughs> to see. Cause I had been waiting for like 10 years to see bungle. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and then you guys played and I was like, what the fuck is going on? And I was blown away because I was like, this is uh, new and this is going somewhere. Did you guys feel that way too? Well, look, I mean, the fact that Mike asked us to go on that tour definitely was a boost of confidence that maybe we're doing something okay. I can understand that. Yeah, it was a huge lesson. I learned a lot from Mike on that tour, just as a, mostly from a kind of like self-managed band person, you know? I learned a lot about how how to be frugal and professional at the same time. It was really, really a huge learning experience, that tour. I will say that we really weren't in the best circumstances, and I'm surprised anybody got anything out of us. And I'd say you're a special person <laughs> if you could see any merit in our performances. I mean, like, as you know, Bungle came on stage with Willie, who was a full percussionist from Zappa with like oh, yeah. I 48 <laughs> like you know percussion instruments all mic'd. And, you know, and like synths and saxes and all kinds of stuff. So by the time we got to get on stage, not only did we not get a sound check, but sometimes we were working with like three channels. <laughs> so, you know, a band like Dillinger with just vocal and snare drum sounds pretty awful. Uh, <laughs> I was right at the front, so I was probably hearing the amps. Yeah, so you probably got some stage amps. Yeah. yeah but, um, and, and also we were still pretty new to like touring on a stage, you know, like, up until that point, we were doing VFW halls and basements, and the visceral performance was really more important than accuracy or reproducing the songs, you know, because not many people knew who we were. Not many people knew the music. So recreating people's expectations was less uh, important than creating a real impression. Well, that, that's what happened. Right. So, so yeah. So, uh, like, you know, people either felt the energy and saw that this was something polarizing and uh, in your face and like it led them to investigate further or they were like, this is the worst thing I ever <laughs> saw in my life. It was really one or the other. Was it at all intimidating to play before Bungle? Because man, I saw them twice on that tour and they just were deadly. Unbelievable. It was ridiculous. I, I don't think people understand now what that band was. There's There's nothing like it. Yeah, especially with the Bungle now. It's it's like, yeah, like now the Bungle's doing this like death metal demos, which is sick, but there was nothing like that California tour. There was nothing in history. Yeah, hasn't been anything since. I've never been on a tour with a band where every single night I enjoyed watching the band, like every single night uh, since that tour. Yeah, it was crazy, and um, we felt certainly very lucky. We were used to playing to a room of wild, rabid wolves, that wasn't new for us, but it was definitely the first time we were playing in front of that many people. 
it was that tour that was really the comparison for later on of whether or not I felt like we made it because we were um, going back and playing many of those clubs and selling them out and, and even playing bigger clubs or two nights in those clubs. And that's when I realized... And we were doing all right. We were doing okay. Yeah, because I compared it to that tour, which to me was like really huge for me, you know? Yeah, I mean, I completely understand. You brought up that Mike taught you a lot about the business side of things. You're known for your entrepreneurial side. Did a lot of that come from basically kind of having him mentor you or was that already kind of how you were wired? It was definitely how I was wired because I always felt I was better that, that than actually playing an instrument. I always felt like my role was in the band was not to sit around playing guitar all day, but to go out and like network and like absorb influence and kind of create the aesthetic and ethic of the band, you know, and the values and stuff like that outside of just the technical aspect, which I felt really was going to differentiate us from just some technical, you know, metal band or something like that. Um, and then like our original drummer, like Chris Penny and some of the other guys were just so technically driven and practice and reading through books and things like that, that, you know, while I, I always had to struggle to catch up, um, you know, technically, the combination uh, definitely created something, I think, special. But yeah, like I was the guy who certainly got a job in an office just so after hours I can use the copier to make tons of flyers. You know, I, <laughs> I was the guy like trying to talk to bands and give them our tapes. And I was the guy like hand drawing every cassette tape cover hours and hours and hours <laughs> and handing them out to people. And yeah, I was always, that was always my thing for sure. I think one of the big drawbacks that a lot of these uh, musician -y bands have is that they don't have somebody like that in the band. And if you're all music all the time, you're going to miss out on, I think, what's arguably just as important if you want to build a career. Yeah, well, it's an interesting thing. I think people like you and I have a really rare perspective for still being in this business and... Um, you know, being around relevant artists, but also coming from a time before YouTube and Facebook and, you know, TuneCore and whatever other tools we have now. Because, um, like you said, there, there was a time when if you were the king of the basement, you were the king of the basement. Like, Dillinger would have been that if I didn't come and do that, you know? what? Like, those other guys' dedication, like Chris Penny, the drummer's dedication to, like, becoming the best literal drummer he could possibly be was also a massive part oh, of yeah. who we were, you know what I mean? But I do think it was the chemistry of both those things that made it special. But yeah, I mean, he absolutely would have just been in the basement playing drums forever and no one would have ever heard it, you know what I mean? Like, you know, but nowadays someone like that can have like 3 million YouTube followers and they do drum stuff all day and night and they've never played a show. So, you know, maybe someone like me is less uh, important now than, than they were in the past. But yeah, I guess there's two different like schools of thought with that whole thing. You know, do you want to actually play music in, out, out in front of people or do you just kind of want to be like in your room? You know, the thing is, though, you know, because I'm sure you also know a lot of these musicians that are popular YouTubers who start that way. And the ones that I know who do well, maybe they don't get a job at a place to copy flyers or anything because you don't need to do that these days. They do their own version of that. They're not fucking around business-wise. I think that the ones who do well have 
some sort of a business sense. And there's always that odd one who just went viral. But uh, I think that's the exception. The, the ones I know who do well are super meticulous about the business side of things. Totally. I think someone like Misha from Periphery is a good example. Oh, yeah. That's the perfect example. You know, that guy could teach classes in, in, you know, in social media marketing. Probably he's an amazing guitar player, great producer. But like what impresses me the most about that guy is, is, is like, you know, self-promotion, marketing, internet savviness, you know, like the guy somehow finds the time to like respond and speak to every single person who comments on his stuff and like has created this community of, well, you know, kind of like gent guitar player, shredders, production guys that are kind of in a whole world of itself. Like you said, you know, a lot of them aren't playing shows. They don't know how to perform, but, uh, some of them are making great money promoting pedals or monetizing YouTube views or playthroughs or whatever. It's a totally different world. I don't, I don't get it. It's not for me, but it's impressive for sure. It's definitely impressive. I've noticed that it's almost like the generation that we're from, you had to do all the groundwork, the ground game basically, in order to create something. And nowadays it almost feels like if you do the ground game first, you're almost fucking up because people don't go You're behind. Yeah. Yeah. People, because <laughs> people don't go to live shows the way they used to. So it's almost like you have to do the internet stuff first, build the audience and then go play to them. It's interesting. Yeah. I, I do um, lectures on the, um, the business of art because it's really just what I know is how to monetize kind of being an un a uh, compromising artist who tries to be honest and create something they care about. And then how do you survive and make money on that? You know, I've, I guess, like you said, I'm known for doing well, being fairly independent. And, you know, the DIY thing is definitely something I'm known for. But, you know, I've never been someone who advocates for do everything yourself, but more like decide it yourself, try different avenues. And, and like, if you can't get in the front door, go through the back door and make it happen. Like I said, even from not having an amp in the beginning, you know. But the lectures I give are interesting because if somebody wants to learn about that kind of stuff, like becoming um, popular on the internet without playing a show, <laughs> I can't teach them that. Like, that's not what I do. So, and in fact, like, you know, Dillinger Escape Plan's last shows, you know, we sold out close to 10,000 tickets. Who knows how many more we could have sold if, you know, we did more nights, but like, we certainly don't have the social media presence that most bands have that are probably could never draw that many people or sell as many albums or something, you know? And so sometimes it's a false economy. It doesn't correlate, you know? But the things I talk about is how do you become a career artist? And I have this diagram where it's like fireworks going straight up in the air, straight up, and it says like trendy band, you know, on top. And then it shows the Dillinger Escape Plan logo, like slowly going in a line, like doesn't ever reach that top fireworks, but it's like continuously just going in its own direction, up, 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 up. And the fireworks come down real quick, you know, <laughs> like it's up and it's down. And I've seen it happen all throughout my career on playing shows like Warp Tours and all kinds of stuff, like bands that were way bigger than us, way popular than us, just haven't really lasted the test of time, whereas like, really, we could do this. We could have done it forever, Dillinger. We, we ended the band bigger than we ever were and with an album that was 
you know, arguably one of the most critically acclaimed albums. Oh yeah, you could have definitely kept going. You know, what I know about is like how to be a true artist, how to build a fan base for being honest and um, creating a, a, a trust in your audience that whatever you do is for the right reasons. Something that was very interesting to me was um, there's two things that were very telling to me about the state of the industry right now. One of them was uh, I did an interview with somebody and they were telling me that their young cousin, he was asking the young cousin what music he liked because he's like, what are kids listening to these days, you know? And he couldn't really mention any bands. He's like, I don't really know bands. I just know songs on the playlists. Like I listen to metalcore's playlists and I'm not sure what band is what. I just can tell you the songs. Oh, but that band Dillinger Escape Plan I like. So basically what he was saying is like everything in the playlist is just another metalcore song interchangeable. But when he heard Dillinger, he knew exactly who we were, you know? What do you attribute that to? To getting out there, having, being out during a time when uh, amalgamation of influences, um, geographical influence, hitting the road, touring, you know, having someone from London sleeping in my bedroom on the floor and playing guitar with them and, and learning things about the influences that they, they grew up on, uh, you know, while still having this really solid influence from like playing basements and touring around the East Coast. And it was just like this thing that like created bands that had a sound that, that isn't happening now because the world's so homogenized. Like I said, there's a lot of benefit to having access to everyone without having to play a show, but um, there is also something to be said for like really pounding the pavement and creating a niche through hard work and blood and sweat and you know sleeping on floors and all that stuff. I'm not gonna say one's better than the other, but that's definitely what we were, and it's definitely more of what I can tell teach kids. A lot of these kids ask me like what the secret is, like how do you um, the secret, the one secret, right? Like how do you make it? What's the secret? When people ask me that from a business standpoint, I usually quote somebody I used to work with who used to own Loud Records and founded, you know, bands like the Wu Tang Clan and this and that. And he was very successful, kind of almost by mistake. <laughs> and he, when I, when I talk to him about stuff like that, he's always like, luck. It's fucking luck. And once you get that luck, you have to be smart enough to parlay that into more success. So in other words, once you get that spark by mistake, like everything lines up, something happens, like pour gasoline on it, you know? But you can't, you can't really predict that. There's no real trick. There's no real, you know, secret to that happening. It's just like, do what you love, make music, do your thing. And if something happens, that's when you need to be smart, you know? You can't predict what the audience is going to respond to. And also you can't, predict and you can't control if a certain gatekeeper is going to be receptive to you, if you're going to meet the sure. right partner at the right time to when they're ready to work with you on whatever it is. Like all these, all these factors that are outside your control, like I think that's the luck factor. Like, and there's literally totally nothing you can do about that. But like you said, one, if you do so happen to stumble across that, it's on you to make the most of it. Absolutely, and a perfect example of that is an artist I managed named Kimbra, who um, was was the part of that massive song, Somebody I Used to Know, uh, the Gautier track. And um, that's another example of, like, take what you got and get to work. And, you know, that song was, like, her most successful offering. You know, it, it, she won two Grammys from it. It sold. It was probably 
I think it was one of the top five biggest selling songs of the whole decade, you know? It's got over a billion views on YouTube. That was this guy, Gautier. He was kind of a local Australian artist, pretty experimental. We'd go out into like the outback and like hit pipes and rocks and make samples. And, you know, it was like kind of known for doing that kind of weird stuff. Had this song, sent it to Kimber, who was friends, who they were friends with. I think the person he initially, initially thought of doing it with wasn't available. So, oh, let me, who's this girl, Kimber, I hung out with once or twice. Sent her the track. She recorded it in her bedroom on a laptop with a blanket around her. And then I think, you know, like Ashton Kutcher came across it and like tweeted it out. I was like, this is really awesome, like the video. And that was it. They went nuts. I mean, that who could have thought that? And that's the song she did on her laptop in Logic with a blanket wrapped around her head. You know, like. Yeah, you cannot predict for the Ashton Kutcher variable. Right. The Ashton Kutcher variable. <laughs> Maybe that should be like a term. <laughs> yeah, you, you just, you can't yeah. predict for that. Uh, so, okay, so can't then the on the topic of bands who take that trajectory you're talking about in the fireworks uh, graph. Yeah. And I actually believe that that's, that's a better way to go in business too and in really any sort of successful venture. You should be playing the long game, in my opinion, always. Yeah, yeah. The long game is where it's at. However, because with that type of trajectory, it takes a lot longer to experience any uh, tangible success. How do you know when to quit, in your opinion? Like, how do you know when it's just not, when it's just pointless? That's a really important point. I mean, leaving the cards on the table is, is, a, is a huge lesson. And I learned that very late in life. Honestly, I wish I learned it sooner. And part of Learning that was like going through a divorce, <laughs> to be quite <laughs> frank with you. <laughs> and that changed my life as far as like not considering moving on from something, giving up, but like realizing like I need to put my efforts into something else. So that's a really, really good question. And I think like it's really important for people to know that when something's not working, when the chemistry's not there, it's okay to move on. It's okay. It's not quitting. It's just realizing, uh, you know, one out of a thousand things work out. I need to acknowledge that and, and put my efforts elsewhere. And that's just being a smart-minded person, you know, who's making unemotional decisions. And I think we all hope to evolve to that point. Um, some of us get there sooner than others. Some of us never do. Again, I didn't get there until probably, you know, about five years ago when I realized it's okay if things don't make sense and what you learn from them is more important than it actually succeeding sometimes. And all of that will um, turn into success in some way. At some point, uh, I started to see those results and I started to see the merit in moving on from things that, that don't work. And um, I can't tell you when that, when that point is, you know. I can tell you examples for me, but... Okay, do you mind sharing any? Sure. So I, a really great one was... Giraffe Tongue Orchestra was a, is, a, is a side project I did with um, William Duvall from Allison Chains, Thomas Pridgen, Brent Hines from Mastodon. I remember that. Pete Griffin played with Zappa, all kinds of stuff. And initially that band was myself, Brent Hines, Eric Avery from Jane's Addiction, and John Theodore from uh, Queens of the Stone Age, Mars Volta. And Brent and I had been trying to do this project for about eight years before it actually happened. And we just kept trying and trying to make it work. And, you know, there were some things just chemistry-wise that weren't working. You know, Eric Avery and I weren't meshing. And 
I just kept trying to make it work no matter what, uh, uh, no matter how difficult it was. You know, we did everything. We moved into Russ Robinson's house for two months and tried to make an album. That did not, didn't work. You know, we <laughs> tried sending files back and forth. We flew to Austin and got in a hotel room with acoustic guitars and tried to write music. None of it worked. And then at some point, I just told the guys, I realized that it was like, you know what? <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. This doesn't have to work. Everybody in this band has reached a level of success on their own merit and doesn't need to apologize for anything. And um, if the chemistry is not there, it's not there. I emailed the guys and said, I think I'm going to um, kind of pull out of this, even though I started it. <laughs> I said, I, I think, you know, after a bunch of like arguments and disagreements about direction and things like that, I just decided, you know what, this just isn't working. I'm going to pull out. And that was hard after eight years. It's a long time. To give up on something like that was huge for me. Eventually, Brent and I just decided to grab a bunch of dudes that we knew we always wanted to play with, go to the studio with Steve Evitz, who we knew we had a great working relationship with, and just say, we're making the album. And we all got in the room and we made the album. And it was, as long as it took to realize it wasn't working, it took two weeks to make that album. You know what I mean? It was just like, when it's right, it's right. When it's not, it's not. So ultimately the band ended up happening, but you know, it wasn't until I pretty much quit for us to figure out that just, you know, <laughs> we got to try a new way. What's interesting about that is that it's one of those things that on paper seems like such a great idea. When you when you list that lineup on paper, it's like, how the fuck can this not work? It's the same with launching businesses, I think, where this is why I always think that when people launch something, they should not wait till it's perfect. They should try to get something to market as soon as possible because you have no idea if something's going to actually work or not. And so a situation like that band, if you were to email me and say, I'm starting a band with this lineup, my immediate thoughts would be, fuck, that's awesome. Right, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's, I'm sure that's what yeah, you were thinking too. Totally. So yeah, but there's there's no way, none of us are psychic, so there's no way to know whether or not it's actually going to work. I think that goes for any venture. So no, knowing when to pull out is wisdom, I think. Right, even with your girlfriend, you know? <laughs> you can interpret that any way you want. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, I think... <laughs> I think that uh, that's the DNA of a, of a starter, of a founder, whether it's music, a band guy, or a startup, a business, or any of those things. You know, you have to have the DNA to be able to adapt and evolve. And, you know, the best businesses and the best bands come out of people that are the right people, not out of the best ideas. You know, it's, it's that the person, this, the, the successful businesses and bands out there, those people who started those bands and were the leaders of bands were going to succeed in one way or another. You know, it just, <laughs> In my opinion, because they have that DNA, and I, I agree, you nailed, you you hit the nail on the head that the ability to shift and play jazz and pivot is uh, more important than, um, you know, having some kind of like ability to to succeed immediately at things. I had a failed business a few years ago. It was a beard oil company, and uh, the product is great. Partners are great. Like marketing was great. Branding was great. Everything about it was great, but it failed. I think that our 
target audience metal people was wrong because uh, even though they have beards, they don't have hygiene. And so uh, right. <laughs> that, that was that was like the, the flaw in the equation. But like it wasn't because we did anything wrong. And that when I realized that I was like, we're not doing anything wrong here. This is just not going to work. Like there's no product market fit is not meant to be hang it up. It's it's cool. It's fine. Whatever. Totally. And I mean, like, I think the day you said that was probably the day you became a super badass businessman. Not the day you like came up with this great idea. You know, it's the day that you were like, you know what? I'm not going to take this personally. I need to just move on. Like this, this, this isn't, uh, I'm learning some things from this and uh, that's it, you know? It was definitely a huge weight off my shoulders and it reinforced, well, see, I already knew the importance of product market fit because of URM. So I know what it feels like to not have it because when my band, when my band was going, you know, even with all the label backing and everything happening, it just, and we were doing everything we could, it just was not working. No product market fit there. And it was like, no matter how hard we worked, nothing good would happen. But then uh, with like URM and now the mix, that shit took off immediately. But I mean, this was after years and years of building up the educational presence. It's not like it took off immediately without any buildup, but build up, build up, build up, and then release that product. And it was exactly what that market wanted. And it's not like it was less work than anything else. It was actually more work. But the difference was that there was like a momentum and a current pushing it along that it just worked. And so when uh, doing the beard oil company, I felt like I was in my band again, where you just everything you're doing is like swimming against a current with combat boots on. And uh, it just like strengthened that idea that uh, there's forces external to yourself that have to be in your favor. And I'm a big personal responsibility guy, but at the same time, if the market's not ready, you know, if the fan base is not ready for your music or market's not ready for your product, ain't shit you can do about that. No, it's always something. You, there's always some predictable things, you know, always. With uh, Dillinger, was it something where you kind of knew pretty quick that it was going to do all right? Or was there a lot of many years of, uh, I'd say, blind faith? It's a good question. I mean, some of the guys in Dillinger were in a band previous to Dillinger, and we were kind of creating music that was a little more typical and derivative of the stuff we were into at the time and it just didn't work. Nobody cared about it. The local scene didn't give a shit. We weren't getting any record deals or anything like that. And we pretty much just gave up on the idea that you can just insert yourself in a scene and do well without some kind of a connection with some record label guy or we're vegan or we're a Christian band or we're a Krishna band or we're like straight edge band or like, you know, you, you can't just make music and, and stick yourself into something. And I think it was at that point that we decided to just fill that void that we felt needed to be filled, create that CD that we didn't see out there and just make music without really worrying about a market actually. And in doing that, during a time when new metal was thriving and uh, Limp Bizkit, Corn, all that stuff was blowing up on a massive commercial level, it really created a market that created a market for us as the alternative to that. So even though 
we uh, appealed to a very small amount of people. It was almost like, if you don't like that kind of predictable cookie cutter metal, here we are, you know, like, and so it just created a niche. And I guess in essence, us not following the trends is what created that niche for us. And, um, you know, you talk about business, that terminology, um, like the long tail, which talks about, it's a marketing term. I love that term. Yeah, like talks about like, you know, all these like little niches um, add up to much more than the few kind of like super hits, you know? <laughs> and so like having the ability to market with the internet and things like that, absolutely every little nook and cranny genre or thing like that enables you to reach a lot of people, especially if you limit the competition. And I always talk about... um the vitamin water kind of analogy. Like people, everybody tried to make colas. You know, Virgin made a Virgin cola. It failed. Did they really? Yeah. I mean, uh, why am I not the, surprised? Richard, Richard Branson, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. if he can't make it happen, you know what I mean? But like, yeah, like you know, there's, there's Coke, there's Pepsi. That's it. You know, like if you want to be Coke or Pepsi, you're not going to be. Vitamin water created something that didn't exist. It was literally just water with vitamins in it. And, and it just didn't exist, you know? And, and it may have not, appeal to like the largest market, but like it totally filled a void. And um, they became like a new category of drink, you know, in a way, much like a band like Dillinger kind of started this math core metal thing, you know what I mean? That, you know, created a niche for something like that. Eventually Coca-Cola bought vitamin water and, and it became a massive company. I thought you were about to say eventually Coca-Cola bought Dillinger. I was like, Eventually, no, but <laughs> Coca-Cola never bought Dillinger. But point being that, uh, I mean, major labels tried to sign Dillinger. You know, that, that definitely happened, despite the fact that we were such a, a crazy niche and so, so basically unmarketable in, in many ways, you know. I mean, Mr. Bungle was on a major. Yeah, yeah, they were. So Crazy shit happens. Crazy shit happens. But I guess point being is that we never expected it. But in creating music that was really just fulfilling our own need and void, in essence, we created a, a niche that ends up having a big enough audience to, to succeed. So you created your own market, basically. Right. We, we filled the void, you know. Or tapped into a market that didn't even know it was there in the first place. Yeah, like I said, instead of trying, we, we could have very easily, you know, we, we were coming up right outside of New York City, you know, we were starting to meet industry people, stuff like that. I could have very easily said, let's make some kind of a like, you know, <laughs> Deftones or Limp Bizkit or whatever and try to get a deal and all those things, you know, it wouldn't have worked. It just wouldn't have worked. And uh, I'm glad we didn't. I'm glad we decided to do our own thing. And like I said, we ended up feeling kind of this void. If, everybody who doesn't want that you know, here's stuff like Dillinger. <laughs> so question I have is, so now we're talking about it in a way of, like you just said, filling a void in the market, kind of creating your own niche, that kind of terminology. But were you thinking that way at the time? And if so, how do you balance that with just pure art? Well, I think when your market, when your brand becomes being art, then um, there's no other way to do it. I guess that's the win. Right. I mean, our fans expected us to do the right thing. Our fans expected us to make music for the right reasons. Our fans expected us to make bold choices. Doing it for the right reasons from the beginning created a freedom that enabled us to do more melodic songs or tour with odd bands that you wouldn't expect us to tour with. Or, you know, it ended up 
creating a scenario where Dillinger's escape plan was on Conan O'Brien and, and Charlie Rose and played with old dirty bastard. And like, <laughs> like, you know, like it created an ultimate freedom. I guess it's kind of like one of those things where uh, I feel like a band like Opeth has done the same thing where it's almost like if you, you set the precedent that you can do whatever you want, then you can do whatever you want. Yeah, and we did it very early. And I always thought of bands like an Offspring or even a Slayer, I always felt almost bad for them because if they didn't put out albums that sounded like what they were supposed to sound like, you know, it wouldn't have succeeded. It would have been like, wow, this is a sellout or this is like, what are they doing or whatever, you know? It's like, but Dillinger, like, you know, very early on, we established that you weren't going to be able to put us into a corner. Uh, very, very early on. I mean, the first song we ever released was like, an instrumental Latin jam, you know, like Latin kind of clean guitar thing. That was the first thing Dillinger ever on a first, first thing on our self-titled CD that ever came out. And then, you know, our second album had singing and weird stuff on it, electronics immediately. Before our second album, we did an album with Mike Patton, which had everything across the board, you know, happening over it. So we very early on created a scenario of freedom based on a creative freedom. When you're talking to artists who are trying to do this, is that something that you encourage them to do? The reason I'm wondering is because, you know, not all artists are that style of artist. There are, like, for instance, I had Devin Townsend on the podcast and we talked about his uh, collaboration with Chad Kroger. Mm -hmm. Oh boy. It's interesting though, because we kind of came to the conclusion that if you're that person, who makes that kind of music and you're that good at it to where it's going to touch that many people. That is who you are as an artist. Like he was saying that from working with Chad, like that dude's not trying to be that way. That's that guy's musical voice, like it or not. That is him being true to himself is Nickelback. And I think that to be in one of those mega bands, it's generally the case. Like I don't think many of them are faking it because it's hard, it's hard to connect with people if you're faking it. I think like most people don't even realize what bothers them about those bands. I, I don't think people are mad at the bands as much as they're mad at the fans. <laughs> That's you know? a good point. I think when musicians and artists and things like that get disappointed at um, when, when a band is massive that just kind of recreates the same song over and over again or is very like formulaic or whatever... I think the reality is is that we're all very disappointed that people aren't more open-minded and aren't searching for more, that they just want to have kind of like easy to swallow music that just kind of doesn't challenge them. And so I think we all are just upset that like more people aren't like us and we can't put out like a calculating infinity and have it all over the radio. And we can't, <laughs> you know, it's... It's not so much that like, hey, you know, people shouldn't be allowed to just make an album that they want and be the kind of band that they want. We're just disappointed that that's the that people that's so big, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? I bet you that Chad Kroger doesn't want to make a Calculating Infinity. Right. But I will say this. One of the reasons why we've always been in interesting scenarios, whether touring with big bands uh, that you wouldn't expect us to, is because a lot of these bands did feel kind of backed into a corner and did feel because of their success, they couldn't do something like Dillinger. And they always kind of admired us and like would bring us on tour because we were doing something that they really couldn't do without destroying their career. 
so there was always like an admiration for a band like us, even though we were so, so small in comparison. And we never really could add anything to them other than like the ability to uh, just like see a band they dug or try to expose their fans to something that they couldn't do in their own music without getting destroyed, you know? So why do you think they took you guys? I think that's it. Just pure fandom, basically. A lot of these bands were like admired the fact that we were doing something so against the grain. And uh, I think, you know, kind of live vicariously through us. Although they're making money and they're all over the radio and stuff like that, if they put out 43% burnt, it wouldn't work. You know, they couldn't, they couldn't do it. So the fact they could kind of live vicariously through us every night or whatever um, was something cool for them. So do you think that uh, figuring out your own voice, because uh, this kind of seems like one of the big topics of what we're talking about is knowing your knowing your artistic voice and rolling with it rather than trying to be something you're not. Is that something that you understood about yourself early on? Like at what point did you start to realize that you kind of make, I don't want to call it outsider music, but uh, music that is outside the norm. Was it always that way? No, I mean, honestly, I was more of like a blues player before Dillinger. I, I was came up on like Stevie Ray Vaughan and uh, Eric Clapton. And that's the kind of stuff I was learning early on when I was a kid. I wasn't... So what the hell happened? I wanted to create a band that would make the impact that Dillinger had. So I had to make music like that. <laughs> <laughs> I had to rise to the occasion in order to create the music that I had envisioned in my head. Uh, I wasn't like a great technical player when Dillinger started at all. And I would write music I could not play. And then having a producer like Steve, I think that goes back to why we continued to work with him is that I knew that by the time I got out of that studio, I could play it because he would just push me and push me and push me. So part of the process was like, was increasing my skill levels, you know, by just recording with something like that. So every time I came out of a Dillinger album, I was a better guitar player because I was writing music that was challenging for me based on the fact that I never came up like really sitting down playing guitar all day. So yeah, I mean, I guess as far as like the odd stuff, I mean, I was always attracted to weird music. I liked fusion. I was getting into things like Mahavishnu Orchestra and King Crimson and stuff like that. You know, I came up on show music, Broadway music that was really eclectic and dynamic and told a story and had a lot going on and was very dense instrumentation wise. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I definitely had a background with a lot of influence, but I certainly wasn't writing songs that were like eclectic until Dillinger. Got it. So there was just a vision and you figured out a way to fulfill it, basically. Yeah, and like I said, I think it was a combination of really our drummer, Chris Penny, being really technical and me just really being kind of more punk and hardcore and wanting to just make emotional music and then finding a way to incorporate the common ground, which was things like Mahavishnu Orchestra, Cynic, King Crimson, the death metal we all liked, you know, from back in the day, that kind of thing. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, 
Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. I feel like something that's super crucial for people to understand is that even if you're a big artist, this matters, but especially if you're more on the indie side, figuring out a way to establish multiple streams of revenue is just the way. I think that a lot of musicians need to get the idea that making money off of just one thing is how it's done anymore. And I think that a lot of them still kind of hold on to that fantasy. That what? That you can just make money off of? Yeah, that, that you could just make money off one. Like you can just be in a band and just make money off the band. So I guess what I'm curious is uh, at what point did you figure out that you needed to pull in multiple streams and how did you go about setting that up so that... Because I mean, let's face it, man, that kind of music... You could make nothing off of it, or or you can do okay, and it's all in how you approach it. Well, I think a big part of it was realizing that we needed to be an international band. Dillinger was a band that was pretty much the same size in every major city in the world, like whether we were playing Tokyo, London, New York City, Sydney, we were pretty much the same size band all over the world. I think part of that was you know, the fact that we were unique, and people spread the word. There was a lot of word of mouth, and people really who got Dillinger really enjoyed pushing it on people. So I know that like that kind of spread the word in different places and enabled us to play in all these cities uh, organically. Being able to play shows everywhere, sell merch everywhere, continuously tour without oversaturating a market was very, very crucial for us making a living. So as opposed to playing each city in the U.S. seven times per year, being able to spread it out across the whole world. Yeah, being able to be extremely active and busy um, while still creating a demand, it was something that was crucial for us in in, uh, monetizing our career and enabled us to continuously sell merchandise at shows, to play shows, to um, spread the word, to, to... play festivals um, and get bigger paydays. And that that was really our bread and butter for most of our career. How long did it take before you could start traveling internationally and doing it like that? When the band started, I was in college. I just started really taking off. I'd gotten my degree in psychology. 
I was working a corporate job and I was in a master's program and doing Dillinger all simultaneously. And at one point, I eventually was basically just working full time and then spending weekends and nights doing Dillinger. Yet I kept getting these opportunities with the band to leave and like go to Japan to play with Pantera, you know, or yeah. <laughs> I think that was the one when we had to go to Tokyo, when we got the opportunity to go play some big festival in Tokyo, which ended up being Pantera's last show, actually, interestingly enough. And my boss was just like, I don't really know how to deal with this anymore. I realized I had to make the decision to dive in head first. And, uh, and I did. And I quit my job, broke up my girlfriend, you know, except that I was going to be living at my parents' house for the next foreseeable future, you know, like how many years, and just dove in and hit the road. And, um, you know, it was hard for a long time, but it, it also kind of chose us. We had to make the choice. The opportunities presented themselves. Yeah, could you imagine saying no to that? Exactly. It got to the point where, we would, where I was either going to um, get fired <laughs> or not be able to do these opportunities, and I just had to make the choice to dive in. And I remember actually um, living with my parents for so long. I was lucky enough to have the opportunity and the relationship with them where I could do that. And just after tours, like we'd hand out checks to everyone in the band. And I remember not cashing my checks. Like I had a safe in my room with just checks on cash because I wanted the guy's checks not to bounce. And I knew that I had, could live with my parents and those guys had rent or whatever. So I remember just like stacks of uncashed checks for me and, and the band so that the band would have the money, <laughs> the guys would have the money. And uh, it was just things like that, you know, that you had to do in order to make it work. Well, one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is that money problems is like the number one killer of smaller bands. Yeah, and now with this current situation, it's going to be the number one killer of mid-sized bands too. Yeah, absolutely. Aren't you glad you got out before this? God, I mean, well, I still, I still play in suicidal tendencies full time. It's it, you know, but it is a source of income, which has now been gone for you know half a year, and uh, I still manage artists who now can't can't performer and that's a source of income for me so um i'm certainly happy that i'm not relying completely on on just touring with dillinger <laughs> but yeah it's, but it's still, still it's affecting you. really difficult yeah it's certainly affecting me how are you dealing with it you know i'm just staying positive and um you know particularly with with the the artists i work with i'm really always looking for opportunities for them to monetize the situation so you know um like for instance, Kimbra, uh, we did a couple of like streaming concerts. Um, we did a sponsored concert by a company in New Zealand that was like geo-targeted just to New Zealand, where she got paid by the sponsor to do like a Facebook Live thing. Just really, you know, a number of like a, a lot of people are looking for content right now, so we're doing like promotions with Native Instruments and uh, Isotope and things like that. Where there's a little money in it, and there's you know, and, and it gives the artist an opportunity to stay busy. You just have to really be creative and proactive. And uh, I also am a big, big fan of Patreon. I use it myself and encourage the artists I work with to use it. What do you like about it? What I like about Patreon is there's flexibility. You can, I don't consider it like a crowdfunding. Or, I never liked crowdfunding stuff, personally. I always thought that like, I don't know, something about it didn't feel good. It always felt like you were 
asking for money. You know what's interesting about crowdfunding is I think that it goes against the culture of music. There's something about music and audio people to where something about crowdfunding rubs them the wrong way, whereas in other... Takes magic away. That's exactly... I think that's what it is, because I think in other lines, in other industries, it's perfectly okay. Like, I know of certain authors who have crowdfunded books. And the question was, do you want me to write this book or not? Right, and documentaries and, right. Yeah, and it makes perfect sense. It does, but I, th- I think with crowdfunding, to me, it was always like, you wanted an artist to just be making stuff and then you like it, so you pay for it. Not like, I can't make my stuff, will you give me some money? <laughs> you know, it's like, it just feels weird. But like with Patreon, it's like, look, I'm an artist, I'm creating, with or without you. If you support me, it's going to help me continue to create and I'm going to, you're going to have access and a window into my process, into stuff, demos, things that, you know, into my bedroom while I'm working on music, all kinds of stuff. It's really just like a super cool fan club, really. And the more active you are and the more devoted your fans are, the more you can actually support yourself by just being really good at what you do, you know, as opposed to being like, I'm not going to make this unless you pay me. The other thing I like about it is that you can either do it on a monthly basis or you can do it on a project, an item basis. So where I have Kimbra, her Patreon's amazing because it's like there's two tiers. It's like $5 or $25. That's it. And she is so active on it, it, it almost scares me. It's like, whoa, you just like gave them a demo for like your biggest hit that like totally opens the curtain. You know what I mean? But it's like super cool, you know? Or like you're playing brand new songs that aren't released yet to these kids like on your guitar in your apartment like this shit's like a year from being out and you're playing this stuff so I mean it's pretty amazing stuff like access to special merchandise other people can't get so she's got like that going on for me because I'm so busy and I'm doing so many things I have it set up so that when I release music the fan is charged if I don't release music they're not charged so I have no pressure to create all the time if I'm busy doing other things. And it also, I use it as a way to help support uh, an animal sanctuary I run with my wife at my house. So I like it because it's kind of like this multi-purpose thing. It enables, it, it encouraged me to continue to make music despite the fact that Dillinger's not a band anymore. And it also um, helps these animals. So people can kind of like be like, I like animals, I want men to make music. Let me support this. When, and then when. when I have time and I create something and I'm encouraged to create something, I'm like, man, these, these animals need food. Let me like sit in my computer and like just start making cool shit. Like it incentivizes me to stay creative. So that's what I like about it. It still feels like part of the creative world. When it pays by item, is it like you release it and I guess the cash register goes or do they, you release it and then they pay voluntarily? They pick a tier. It's like a dollar, and whenever I make a song, you get it automatically. So it's like, you know, it's like the price of a song. If you bought a song on iTunes or whatever, it's a dollar, right? So so if you released a 1,000 songs this month, would they get charged $1,000? Yes. Okay. There's all kinds of specific kind of details you can put into it. Like you can have... Like a cap. A cap. You can have caps. Yeah, you can have caps. You can always change tiers. You could be like, you know, I, I, I did the uh, the $50 tier, but I'm kind of broke this month, so I'm going to drop it to the $1 tier, you know, and still get the song, but I'm not going to get like the cool poster or something, you know? 
It's very flexible, and I've pretty much made a precedence that I, I don't really release me. At the most, I'll release a song a month, and honestly, it's been probably five months since I released anything just because I haven't felt it's been appropriate right now with people hurting so much and everything that's going on. Yeah, I completely agree with you. We actually suspended release schedules for some, in addition to Nail the Mix, we have a uh, well, we have an upper tier to our subscription, but we also release some premium courses. Like uh, we were this month, we were gonna we did one with Will Putney. That was that's like his entire production process from start to finish. With like in real time, it's like seventy hours long, dude. It's crazy, and we know it's gonna murder. We know it, but uh, we put it off because we can't be charging people three or four hundred dollars right now for that. So. We're putting it off till people are working again. I know that people would pay for it. That's the thing. So I would feel kind of slimy about it because I know that from experience that lots of times when people are broke, but they're super fans, they will put their fandom before their uh, well-being. And like, I don't want to take part in that. No, I feel you. I feel you. It's a tough, it's a tough one. It's tough because also that's your stream of income. So like, yeah, well, that's the other thing. I mean, look uh, at the same time and I've been pretty outspoken about this. I don't know how many people have reached out to me personally or for the artists I work with and asked us to do some kind of like charity streaming thing where all the money goes to first line workers or frontline workers or something like that. And to me, like my community is artists, you know, like, I feel for all these other people, but I see this people struggling so much in our world. And, and people, music and movies and videos and art is like what's keeping people sane right now during this time. And so I just find it odd that like someone would be like, we are going to do a concert where you play and we're going to give the money to the, to the artists. Like, why is that so taboo right now? You know, it's like these artists are literally have children. They have rent, they have mortgages, they can't tour, they can't go sell merch. It's already so difficult to survive in this business, yet we're constantly being asked to donate our music, and, and that bothers me. So, I mean, I've actually had people change where they're donating the music to, the money to, based on me making them aware of that. So, for example, you know, Metal Injection did the whole, like, festival, like, online streaming festival, and you know, Frank asked if I would participate and I said, I'll participate, but I need to know that some of the money is going towards artists in some way, shape or form, you know, if not to the artists themselves, which would be nice. I mean, they're all sitting at home <laughs> struggling, <laughs> at least like Music Cares, who has done amazing things by helping artists who don't have health insurance or abuse, you know, drug abuse problems or need rehab or need a, a root canal in the middle of a tour or, you know, it's an amazing organization. So, you know, he split the, the proceeds with Music Cares because of that. So that's something I've definitely been outspoken about, the fact that I don't think that it should be taboo for musicians to ask for money. <laughs> you know, it's like you wouldn't ask a plumber to fix your toilet for free. You know, it's like I completely, completely agree with you. I guess people make the argument that music isn't directly saving people's lives like the frontline workers. But what you said is and I completely agree with, I think art is what keeps people sane. Also, it's what documents uh, where people were feeling at certain points in history. It's like a marker for a time period. And I'll tell you, you know, like while musicians and artists are my community, my wife is a doctor. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm no stranger to like 
you know, the work that they do and the position they put themselves in. But guess who's getting paid a lot of money still? My wife. Yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, and, and she'll say it. She's like, we sign an oath. We sign a fucking oath to take care of people. That's what we do. You know, like, why is everyone doing parades for these people? Like, they're working. They're getting paid. They're doing their job that they always wanted to do. So, I mean, like, I, I have another, I hear another perspective from someone who does save lives, you know? And um, whereas she sees, like, you know, the artists that I deal with, like, struggling to pay their rent. That's really, really interesting because if you were to say that and not have that, pers- like if a doctor is saying that, that gives you a whole new perspective on the idea. Whereas if it's just someone who's not related and it's like, you know, someone who has nothing to do with that and is like, they signed a note, oh, they're just be, doing their job. You'd be, you'd be like, that fucking dick. But hearing a doctor say it, it's a whole different perspective. Yeah. My wife was eight months pregnant with our daughter. We were in a bus in Poland on an icy road, broken down. The driver never woke us up to tell us we were broken down. We were all sleeping. It was like four in the morning and a truck hit us on the road. My wife and I were in the back lounge on the couch, closest to the back wall because she was pregnant and she couldn't fit in the bunk. You know, like we both couldn't fit in the bunk. So, she, so you know, and all of a sudden I hear what sounds like a wrecking ball hitting our bus. And I somehow scoop her up throw her to her feet, and the wall behind us explodes. Her head was against that wall. My back was against that wall. I don't know how. I, you know, we had a trailer, so maybe subconsciously I heard the trailer get hurt like a you know, millisecond before. Just one of those spidey sense things. It was a spidey sense thing, and I was freaking out. Are you okay? Is the baby okay? Immediately she ran to the front of the bus and started helping people. That was it. She didn't think, you know... I'm fucking eight months pregnant, this, that. She ran to the front of the bus. One of our, our drummer ha- was having a seizure. You know, our guitar player cracked a vertebrae and was turning blue, couldn't breathe. I was like, hey, where's my cell phone? Is my laptop okay? <laughs> like, I was so confused, you know? Like, she, she was there, you know? Priorities. And, and, and that's what they do. Yeah, that's what they do, you know? That's what they do, and, it, it, and they're superheroes, you know? But um, at the same time, she's like, that's what we fucking do. That's what we do. You know, like, <laughs> and they get paid handsomely. And they get paid handsomely. Some of these people, you know, like, okay, cool. You're still making $250,000 a year, you know, while, while like people are literally like, this country is falling apart, you know? So I definitely, look, I, I, I give them full credit. They deserve what they're making, but they don't need charity. No, they full deserve it. And it's another perspective I get from having her as my wife is like, she's a breast cancer surgeon, you know? She, she is the highest level of education, Cornell, Sloan Kettering, like she has more diplomas than, you know, I have fucking songs probably. And she, you know, and um, when these people come to me and they want an artist I work with to pay like, you know, fucking $4,000 a day for some kind of fucking photo thing or eight grand for like, you know, an ad or something like that, I, I can't help but think to myself, my wife doesn't make that much a day. And she literally has people's lives in her hands. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like it makes it very hard for me to sympathize with certain people. But who I do sympathize with is musicians who are constantly asked to do everything for free. Producers are too, though. Producers. And producers and producers. I'm sorry, people listening. I don't feel as sorry for producers because producers get paid a lot better than musicians a lot of the time. And when it comes to like, you know, label situations or whatever, the producer does get paid before the band typically 
Typically. It's true. Yeah. Not always. Yeah. Even though I do feel bad for producers. The people I actually feel the worst for aren't even the musicians. It's the road crews. Because the musicians can use Patreon. They can be creative. They can figure out a way around it. But the people who are like the lifer road crew members, what the hell are they going to do? I guess if there's tears of who I feel bad for, the lifer crew people are the ones that I really feel for because they can't make Patreons. Absolutely. Ultimately, like, I feel most bad for anybody who can't feed their children right yes. now. You know, artists, you know, plumber, whatever the fuck you are. Like, musicians and artists is my community, so I can speak on that more. But there's a lot of people right now hurting, and it's a very strange time, and... um you know, I think uh, I'm lucky enough to have uh, a house and a roof over my head and food and all this stuff. And, you know, I look out my window and I see goats and chickens. You know, I don't see, I feel guilty almost, but I don't see, you know, we have like no cases of COVID in the hospital where my wife works now and there's no riots. And it, I feel very isolated and uh, in a bubble in a way. Um, but there, but I think it's easy for people like me and to forget that there are people out there that are would rather the risk of getting, you know, this illness than like completely lose their business. And it's completely understandable. Yeah. So I think that it takes a lot of empathy right now with everything going on, with the racial tension, with the COVID stuff, with the finance, with the, with the economy, with politics. I think everyone just needs to be more empathetic in general. Like really, just needs to be empathetic. And number one. I agree. I really, really like what you said about taking care of your own community. And the reason that I think that that's kind of, we started doing things like that right when COVID hit. It wasn't so much about giving money at first, but it was more about anyone who has been affected. Anybody in the industry who's been affected could get anything from us for free during their time period, not working so that if they wanted to at least improve their skills, like, you know, if you want to get better at recording so that you can That's amazing. make more stuff and put it out there and try to profit. So cool. Yeah. So we did that. And my philosophy, which I think is kind of what you're saying is I can't help everybody in the world. Like, and none of us can help everybody. Like we, we got to make choices as to who we're going to help. I think it's a fantasy to think that you can help every single cause and every single group of people. So my priority is going to be to help my demographic first, my people first. And so my people are producers and musicians and uh, people in the industry. So that's what I've focused on. And uh, I guess on the outside, you don't get the same good guy points, I guess. You don't get to like parade around that you're like a really good person. But in my opinion, I think that if more people took care of their own, their own industries, their own coworkers, their customers, all that, their employees. Uh, like, so another thing that was huge to me was none of my employees are going to have any reduced pay during this entire time. I'm going to do everything possible that every single person we pay does not feel this. And so that, that's been another one of my priorities. That's unbelievable. Look, I mean, the truth is, is that if everybody just had those ethics and values, then it would spread to all industries and all people in some way, you know, I think I kind of got slammed on my Instagram once recently with everything going on. I, I put some positive posts up, even though everything I was seeing was negative and I was fully sympathetic and aware of everything going on. I just put something positive and I said during this awful time, you know, I think sometimes good is more infectious than bad. I agree. And, and you know, and I really, you know, ended up spending the day defending myself 
because I, <laughs> it, it was uh, because I said something positive. And, and I understand the point of view and I understand there's uh, different perspectives. And, but I do think that seeing good and seeing people take care of people and seeing the outcome of that kind of behavior and values is more infectious than, than bad. There's not just that, okay? So first of all, I completely agree with you. The other thing is, so when COVID happened, I ramped up. I have two podcasts right now in addition to the two companies. And like I ramped up the podcasts to where we're doing three of these a week. Like this week, for instance, I'm doing seven podcasts in six days. And so I've been talking to a lot of people. I'm noticing that there's two camps basically, and I'm talking to people that are our friends, you know, like I'm sure that most of the people I've spoken to are your friends too. And I've noticed there's either the people who are like, this sucks, but I'm going to figure out a way to make the absolute most of it. And, uh, uh, you know, it does suck. I don't know when I'm going to tour again, but I'm going to figure something out. Or maybe it's like uh, with me personally, the, for me, this was... I needed time to get uh, to get my health together, and uh, that's what I've done for the past few months. I couldn't have done it otherwise because Nail the Mix travels every single month for about two weeks of the month, and it was wrecking me. So what I've been noticing is some people are like, okay, this is not a situation I can control. I wish I could, but I can't. I actually don't even know when this situation is going to end. Nobody does. We're all in this. It's going to go as long as it goes. So the question is, if you're in a fortunate enough situation where you're not starving or you're not sick, it, okay, outside of those scenarios, what are you doing with this time? Because at some point it's going to end and then what? So I've noticed that there's the one camp of people who are thinking like that, who are doing every single thing possible, kind of like what you said about Dillinger in our early days, exploring every single nook and cranny of how to uh, do the best out of this. And then I know a bunch of other people who are equally as successful, equally as brilliant, equally as cool. I love them to death, but their attitude is just rotten. And I understand why they feel that way. I get it. But I feel like they're giving in to, uh, they're giving in to something and they don't, I feel like it's not going to serve them well. And I feel bad for them. Yeah. I wish people were more positive about it. I stopped making positive posts though, for the same reason. Like at the beginning I was posting things like, uh, you know, about making the most of this time and look at it like a gift, like shit like that. And, uh, then I was like, you know what? This isn't going to be taken the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's tough, man. It's really tough. It seems like there's no real right way to respond to what's going on right now without kind of, like, losing the narrative. Well, you're going to piss somebody off no matter what you say. You're going to piss somebody off no matter what. And that's okay. I think, I think that's okay. The one thing I do find is a lot of people just regurgitating things they saw on the internet <laughs> or something like that. And then, oh, man. then they kind of, like, have to take it back because it's like they get railed for it or somebody challenges it or hurt their band and the guys in the band say, yeah, why did you say this? And that kind of bothers me. You know, there's so many theories about what's going on right now with the politics and, and with the current state of affairs, affairs, defund the police and the awful things that have been happening um, and the Black Lives Matter stuff and the COVID stuff and the economy. And in this day and age, it's just really easy to to find a direction that you, and, and, and find evidence for it. You know what I mean? 
I mean, you could find evidence that 5G caused COVID if you want. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, here, pick any three-digit number and write new cases and put it in Google. See what happens. I mean, that's just, that's all I'm saying. And I mean, there's just so much crazy shit happening right now. And I think the only thing we can do is try to just acknowledge there's only certain things we can control. We have to, like I said, try and try and have our values that we stick by, set good examples, live by them, um, act more than speak in some respects. And sometimes speaking is part of that and just try and have a critical mind right now. Um, so it is really hard to fully engage in the narrative right now because there's so much unknown and there's so many schools of thought. And often a lot of them have great points, even if they're conflicting, you know? So I find it really difficult sometimes to join in the conversation uh, with enough education <laughs> and enough knowledge to feel confident, you know? It's a complex world and uh, a very nuanced world. Uh, I think that one of the things that social media does and that is going on nowadays, which is causing lots of the problems, is the lack of nuance and the lack of ability for people to understand that there can be two parallel things that don't necessarily on the surface go together existing at the same time. And because of the polarization, they feel like they have to take one side or the other when you don't. You really don't. But I get it. There's reasons that are personal to them for why they feel the way they do. And it's not for me to judge. But two questions. First of all, how does your wife feel about the 5G shit? I mean, she's like way more of a tinfoil hat person than I'll ever be. So your wife thinks 5G caused COVID? She doesn't think it caused COVID, <laughs> no. But she's definitely more open to the like conspiracy theories out there than I am. She is very confused right now uh, from a medical standpoint of what's going on. That's kind of why I'm curious, because honestly, you know, the only people I trust are the medical community. I want to know what they think. Well, I think that they're confused, too. I mean, my wife, earlier on in this thing, she had she was doing like a Zoom with people, her patients, to try to help answer questions because her patients are immune compromised. Some of them are chemotherapy. Some of them, a diagnosis early could mean the difference of their life, yet they couldn't go to the, to the doctor or the hospital or could only do tele, you know, visits. And so it was a very stressful time for her and very sensitive. And she said it was for the first time in her life she didn't feel confident answering the questions. You know, she, she didn't know. You know, she's usually like knows. She knows the answers, you know? <laughs> yeah, man, I had an experience last week. So I got gastritis in May, which is okay. sucked, but it's uh, clearing up now. But I got really scared because it was really bad. Like I thought I had something way worse with me because it was bad. And so the option was either wait till who knows when to get an upper endoscopy or go get one and risk being in a hospital with uh, COVID all around. And so I asked my primary care doctor, what do you think I should do? And he was like, look, man, there's no good answer here. If you're suffering, you probably want to go figure out what's wrong. At the same time, you know, I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that you have to make that decision. And when he said that, he when he said there's no good choices, I was like, all right, they don't know what's going on either. Yeah, they don't know. They don't know. And, I, and I've had good conversations with some of her friends who are, you know, on the front lines. And she's got this network of doctors and surgeons and they all talk and they all and all of them are have different opinions, to be quite frank. You know, some of them are like the ventilators are what's killing everybody. It's not a lung thing. 
you know, it, it's oxygen, it's not oxygen problem in the blood, you know, and when you dry them out and you don't put them on IVs and you put their already, you know, stressed out organs on a ventilator, you're killing them. So, so there's been a lot of just not knowing how to handle it, you know, and then some people are honestly saying, you know, my, my father-in-law is also a doctor and he got it and he was on the um, anti-malaria drug and he basically had a cold and was better and went back to work. Now, could that have just been an individual thing? Him and all his friends took the anti-malaria drug. They're all doctors. They all had minor symptoms, stayed home, rested, watched TV, you know, did a little gardening, and went and two weeks, three weeks later, we're, we're better and have the antibodies. So, and then for everybody I hear like that, I hear someone who's like, you know, dad died or something. So it's very, very scary, and it's very hard to know what's going on. And, um, you know, I think the biggest problem is that they just don't know how to treat it and they don't know the reality. I think there's political things. Like I said, I'm not a conspiracy thing, but I think there's political gain in, in promoting some of this stuff. I think there's misinformation. I think things are being reported as COVID deaths that are not because they don't have time to get tests back and the hospitals need the money, you know, because they're not doing surgeries. They're not doing anything else. So if it's not a COVID case, they just... It's not going to pay the bills, you know? So And the hospital will close. And the hospital will close. So, you know, hey, this person had like pneumonia. They had lung things. They had all these things. We don't know what it is. Put COVID. You know, it's dead. They're dead. No. You know, so I, I know I'd get criticized by somebody for every single one of these things I'm saying. And I'm, I'm not saying I know. I'm just saying. This is what you're hearing. We don't know. Okay, so the thing that I will say is my philosophy on this is that None of us know shit. And yes, that's mine too. Yeah. You cannot believe anything you hear on the news about it because if you just look at what we've been told, it keeps flip-flopping. Like one day it's like, don't wear masks. Don't wear masks. You get shamed if you wear a mask. Now wear masks, wear masks. Like it's always changing. And, and also like from my conversation, like I said, from my conversation with doctors, they don't know. They don't have good answers. You're saying right here, doctors have a bunch of different opinions. And then there's all this shit politicizing it. And then we know that the media likes to take sides with that. And so you just don't know what to trust. And because of that, I don't know anybody reasonable who would disagree with the fact that we don't know what to trust these days and that people don't know what's going on. Anyone who says they actually know what's going on is full of shit. And so that being said, my philosophy is err on the side of caution. Yeah, and I think it's a very scary thing to not have answers. And we've always, as human race, always tried to, to um, explain everything, you know, from <laughs> thunder is the gods being mad to, you know, <laughs> every single thing in the world that happens, we always need some kind of explanation. And I don't think that even the highest level of people in our government even agree on anything. So doesn't seem like it. To think that there's some giant agenda that's making this happen, it's hard for me to believe because I feel like even the people in the highest levels, they don't even like, trust each other. So how could they all be coming together to like make something this massive, you know, happen as far as like those conspiracy things, you know? So like I I just don't know. I think, like you said, the best thing we can do is agree that we don't know and do our best to navigate with the information we get, you know, I guess. 
yeah, err on the side of caution and do your best. And the reason I think that most conspiracies are bullshit is kind of what you just said. I think a lot of people are not taking into consideration human incompetence <laughs> to pull off. Right, exactly. I think that most people are just not that, <laughs> yeah. People are just not that organized. To pull off some massive thing, you know how many people would need to be involved? There would be a leak at some point and just... You know how hard it is to just get a tour together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or like producers listening, you know how hard it is to just get a record across the finish line. Can you imagine mounting an international conspiracy with tens of thousands of people involved? Totally. Exactly. That's my point. And, you know, maybe we're wrong. Maybe there's some kind of crazy Illuminati thing. Shit, maybe there is. We don't know. <laughs> maybe there is. The fuck knows. But I know I'll never know. So... At that respect, I need to just raise my kids right and do what I can do to, I guess, set an example the best I can. You know, I always say to people, you know, if my kids grow up knowing that life isn't fucking fair and that's just, oh, that's, that's okay, then I did the right thing. <laughs> you know? That's a great lesson. Life ain't fair and that's all right. Get over it. <laughs> I mean, get over it. How do you teach them that life isn't fair? Honestly, okay, so the first time that I was ever on a real tour was with Unearth. And uh, I was sharing a bus with them. And I remember they had a list of rules on a dry erase. And the first one... The first one was you have to do push-ups outside of the club and lift weights. No, no, it was it was nobody cares. Okay, because I just remember when we toured with them, they would always get out of the bus and do like... They would be like lifting weights and stuff. <laughs> oh yeah, they did. They did that too. But they had this. The first rule was nobody cares, so that you don't forget that nobody cares. And uh, like that's stuck with me for like the past fifteen years. As like, it's one of the best lessons I've ever learned. And I feel like uh, the earlier you learn that, and which is basically saying life ain't fair, the better off you're going to be. Like, how do you teach your kids that? Every day it comes up, every single day. I mean, kids, there's no better lesson in life than raising kids, you know? Um, and I feel so fortunate that I'm doing it later in life, that I didn't have kids when most of our parents did in their 20s or, you know, um, even early 30s, because I was a fucking dipshit. I mean, <laughs> like, I mean, God, dude, it's like, I excused every single thing my parents ever did <laughs> wrong or it's, immediately once I had kids. Dude, I didn't, I didn't start feeling like an adult till like 38. Yeah, totally. Totally, man. And it's like, but like every single day, a kid is bitching about something just so trivial. Every con, every second, every fucking second, you know? And it's just a constant reminder that um, these kids don't know that this will never affect their life ever. You know, like, like <laughs> what they are when they grow up has nothing to do with this thing that they are so upset about. Nothing. I mean, they could get an F in their second grade math thing and it will never affect them going to Harvard, honestly. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like uh, there's just so many lessons constantly. God, I, I wish my parents knew that when I got an F in 10th grade math. Yeah, me too. Holy shit. <laughs> well, you're not supposed to tell the kids that, you know. Yeah, but, true, true. But we know it, you know, we know. <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, I mean, honestly, things, there's a lot of lessons that I, I really enjoy trying to teach my children that I wish I knew much earlier. And maybe they'll never get it until they get it on their own. But it reminds me on a daily basis of the things that I need to be conscious of, you know? You know what I'm going to teach my kids if I ever have them? Spreadsheets. 
<laughs> uh, I'm going to teach them about spreadsheets and I'm going to teach them about taxes and about credit. Spreadsheets is a good one. Those spreadsheets, are, good one. spreadsheets, taxes, credit, three things my parents never taught me about that I had to learn about the hard way. Love my parents. They were great. But uh, my dad's an artist. They're artistic people. They, uh, you know, you know, they didn't think about, they just didn't teach me that shit. And I had to learn it, like I said, the hard way. So those are three things I'm going to teach my kids. I'll have them. Spreadsheet, taxes, credit. You got it down. Yeah, the, the holy trinity. Okay, so that said, I don't want to take up your whole day. I have a few questions here from our listeners, if you don't mind me asking them for you. All right, let's get to them. Yeah. Okay, so... Jordan McAdam says, what's it like working with Kimbra? I think it's perfect that you guys work together as you both exemplify out-of-the-box thinking in your respective genres. What would you say you've learned from working with her and what would a metalhead be surprised about learning from a pop artist? That's a great question. And I think we just, for one thing, we respect each other a great deal because of the artistic side. And, you know, I think she really appreciates that I come at things as an artist, but also someone who's business-minded and really you know, um, has a lot of experience with the business stuff. I, I mean, with the, with the real, real hands down business stuff, you know, everything. I mean, when I started working with her, she didn't even have a merch store. You know, she was on the biggest song in the world. You know, she, she was on Saturday Night Live and, and she didn't have merch for sale. She didn't have, you know, she had never profited off a tour ever without, and, and would take hundreds of thousands of dollars in tour support. Like, these are things that were just, I needed to fix immediately. And I think she learned a lot from that. And it wasn't easy to kind of change those habits. But one thing that when we started working together professionally like that is that like, I had to become a little less punk and she had to get become a little more punk. You know what I mean? Like Meet in the middle. Yeah, like, you know, like, okay, a, a photo shoot doesn't need to be $20,000, but I had to realize a photo shoot with her needs to be more than a thousand, you know? Like, <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, like I had to remind her that she did that Gautier track in her bedroom on a laptop every now and again when she, you know, is t trying to bring in all these producers that are like high, really expensive or, you know, mu studio musicians or this or that, whatever. But then, you know, I have to go s help her source a Gucci outfit for a red carpet, which is something I never had to deal with with, with, with a hardcore metal, you know? So I, it's a really, really collaborative thing. And I think we both have learned a lot and have grown a lot by working together. One thing I can say that people probably would be surprised to know is that she could probably tell you every time signature in a Meshuggah song. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. I think pop music is some of the highest level music out there. She's super, super next level alien talented. I believe it. All right, here's a question actually for my brother. So what's up, Daniel? He's been a longtime fan of you guys, so I'm going to ask his question. He said, oh, cool. What's up, dude? Please ask Ben about the old school Dillinger days when they used to throw mic stands into the crowd and light things on fire. Things that would never fly in today's day and age, but were a big part of what made Dillinger Escape Plan such a unique spectacle to watch live back in the day. Yeah, that was an interesting, you know, that whole side of Dillinger um, was really conflicting for me because in the beginning, we were playing in basements and VFW halls and we were just venting on weekends. That was what we were doing. And we were playing in environments where people expected the band and the crowd to be kind of inter changeable you know like you know you never knew if the person on the stage was in the crowd or was the singer or whatever and 
there was always some level of uninhibited free expression that people accepted were part of that environment. And, you know, like people who would, at the very least, if they weren't from those CBGBs, like, you know, DC Bad Brains, you know, Cro-Mags days where it was actually dangerous to be at a show, they at the very least were admiring those days and wanted to taste it a little bit. And that's what we brought to the table. When we uh, started getting bigger and player bigger venues and like did the, the Patton EP and the Bungle Tour, there started we started seeing faces in our crowd that wouldn't normally um, be at a show like that and, and certainly weren't prepared for that kind of behavior, I guess. I could tell you an example, like we were playing the Metro in Chicago and it was sold out and, you know, it was, it's a decent sized place. And um, I was so pumped. Actually, Mastodon was opening for us, ironically, uh, at the time. And um, Oh, shit. Nice. Yeah. And we were, we just killed it. We fucking killed it. And I was so pumped that at the last song, I took my guitar just out of pure, like, excitement and just bashed it on the floor and then decided whatever didn't break, I'm going to try and throw across the room and break on the back wall of the club. Because <laughs> why not? Which was just not realistic. You know, like, it's like there was just too many people between the stage and the back wall. Like how far away was the back wall from the stage? I mean, it's a, it was a big club, you know? Too far for a guitar to hit, probably. Too far for a guitar to, to make it without hitting people along yeah. the way. That's for sure. And... You know, uh, we hit a girl. We hit a. I hit a girl. I say we, but like I remember going downstairs, real pumped and energized, and my buddy who was uh, like kind of co-managed and tour managed with me, um, Tom, comes downstairs and he was kind enough to say we when it really wasn't we. It was me. He's like, I think we killed somebody, and I'm like, what? And he's like, you better come upstairs. I I go upstairs and there's a girl laying in a puddle of blood with her two dude friends like staring at me like they're gonna kill me. I was like, oh my God, she's super scared. She has a head injury and, you know, waiting for paramedics to come and, and take care of her. And I'm just like, oh my God, I, I can't believe I did this. Like, uh, and I said to her, I said, um, is there anything I can do for you? And she's like, there is one thing. Can you introduce me to Mike Patton? <laughs> like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. You know, and again, it became clear to me that she was like a Faith No More type of fan, not like a punk person, you know? And this was just insane to her, you know? And um, it really was hard for me because it made me question. And there were many other times where things like that happened where I felt so torn because if we didn't perform like that, people wanted their money back. They're like, we don't go to a Dillinger show to see someone stand there and not make us feel like... It's dangerous. We're in danger. <laughs> yeah, and then at the same time, there were times when people really got hurt. A lot, most of the time it was the band members, but sometimes it wasn't. And as far as like the old days, certain things flying first today, I'll tell you right now, I just finished uh, settling my last lawsuit for Dillinger, and we haven't been abandoned since 2017. It certainly didn't stop. You just answered something that I've been kind of wondering for a really long time was like, <laughs> I just remember like 10 or more years ago seeing videos of the fire and being like, how the hell is this allowed to happen? So you just answered the question. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't. You know, our, our philosophy was ask for forgiveness instead of permission, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> it always was. And, and, and we got banned from every single club there was. We always ended up getting back eventually. Well, sometimes we'd have to sign things, sometimes, <laughs> you know, time heals. But uh, 
Yeah, there was a lot of crazy stuff happening, for sure. Up until the very last day, you know? So did you introduce her to Mike Patton? No, I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, okay, so speaking of Mike Patton, here's a question about him from, man, I'm going to fuck this one up. Sujish Prabhu, how was it working with Mike Patton and how different was it comparing to working with other people? How did you get your end of it together composition arrangement wise in a way that was good enough in your opinion to share with Mike Patton and honestly were you fanboying through the whole process? Well first of all I, I mean we had already done that Mr. Bungle tour and um, you know he was one of you my were favorite bros. singers musicians in the world you know so uh, and I remember I, I was almost I had had a back injury we played a show and someone punched me in the spine and like it kind of one of those things where the next day you wake up and you just can't move something you know swelled up or something and like we were about to get into a van and drive two days three days cross country to California to start this tour I literally could not even like open a door you know like (laughs) like I couldn't I was so fucked and I was like man what am I gonna do and I remember just laying in the back of the van a van with no seats and like a cargo van with just pillows and blankets and a gear in it and just not knowing how I was going to get on stage and play, you know, the most important shows of my life. And when we got to, I think it was, uh, I think it was like Santa Cruz or something. It was the first show somewhere, a beach place in California or whatever. I walk in the room and I see Mr. Bungle sound checking and Mike Patton walks up and introduces himself and um, I am somehow immediately felt better. I just like got so excited, the adrenaline and everything just like healed me. I got on stage and like went nuts and like that was the first and last time I was ever starstruck, to be honest with you. And then, you know, throughout the tour we just became friendly and uh, had a mutual respect and when we were going through the looking for a new singer, uh, we had already started working on some new tunes and decided uh, maybe this would be a good opportunity to work together. We had discussed it on the tour, like doing something. And, um, you know, now is a good time while we were going through this transition. So we just sent him the kind of well-produced demos. And he was like, you know, I feel I feel this. I think I could do something good with this. And the rest is history. You know, interesting that you say that when you met him, it was just like a cool thing. Because I've only met him once but I was like 19, I walked up to him outside of a club, not to fanboy him. I just wanted to know what his vocal warm-up routine was. It was on the California tour. I saw it twice, once in Boston, once in Atlanta. You guys weren't on it in the Boston part of it. You guys were at the Atlanta show. So anyways, he just happened to be walking down the street. I wasn't like stalking him. I just was like, oh, there he is. I'm going to ask him. And so I approached him and talked to him like a normal human being and just told him I really respect what he does and what do you do to warm up before a show? Because it's such a wide range of, of vocals going on and it seems like it could really destroy your throat. And uh, he was totally cool and walked me through the whole thing. At the same time, like three fanboys came up and interrupted us and started like just like punishing the shit out of him. Off. And he turned his back to them and kept talking to me like a normal person. And uh, that made me feel really good. That's my Mike Patton story. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you did it right. It's a great story, you know? And and, um, I have to say, I feel like kind of a similar uh, experience. (laughs) Well, you know what it is? I think 
treat people like a human, not like a circus spectacle, and they'll probably be cool. Yeah. In general. Totally. All right, man. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on. It's been awesome talking to you. I know that we've like we've tried to hook up in the past and just didn't work, and I'm really glad we got a chance to do this. And thank you again for giving the okay to be on Nail the Mix. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for doing that with the Dillinger stuff. And um, again, man, you know, Steve is the best, and I'm really glad you had him on, and thank you for having me as well. It was a pleasure. Okay, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at ALEVY URM Audio. And of course, please tag my guests as well. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.